The Bible reading can be found in your leaflet or on the screen behind me. And we're reading from Isaiah chapters 11 and 12. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand as a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scouring wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. In that day, you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. 
for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Thank you, Helen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. My name's Jamie, if we haven't met yet. Uh, In 1946, Viktor Frankl put out a book about living through the Nazi concentration camps. Uh, It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it he says, Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. Humans need hope. An otherwise bleak life can have meaning with hope. An otherwise great life without it, well, it's not great. If this is your first introduction to the book of Isaiah, what a place to start. And if you've been reading along up until this point, I'm guessing you noticed a contrast. After ten chapters of despicable human behavior and God's judgment... Hope blooms. If you were one of Isaiah's first hearers, can you imagine how this news would have hit your ears? Let's try and put ourselves into the world of fear that Isaiah first spoke to. We're talking seven, eight centuries BC. God's people Israel have turned away from their loving father. And as a result, they live in a nightmarish world where the rich get richer and the weak get abused, where religion is an empty show and the armies of the Assyrian Empire are marching towards their doorstep. They're exposed and helpless. It's a world of fear because it's a world under God's judgment. It sounds a bit like our world, doesn't it? Where there's plenty of military conflict plenty of mass injustice, and even in our fairly peaceful neck of the woods, there's cutthroat competition and favoritism and anxiety about what I'm meant to be doing in the world. So where do we find hope? We need it. But Isaiah warns us about a couple of empty hopes, empty go-tos. Empty go-to number one is within Last week we heard that awesome moment in chapter 6 when Isaiah gets a glimpse of God in all his purity and in a moment of clarity he says, I am ruined. He looks inside himself and comes up short before a holy God. The other empty go-to is the powerful in the world, the rich, the influential. From chapter 7 there's been a bit of a saga Uh, King Ahaz was Judah's king at the time, and he found himself staring down the barrel of the Syrian army, not the Assyrian army, the Syrian army and the Israelite army, his own estranged brothers. What a terrifying place to be. But Isaiah comes to Ahaz with a word from God. Don't panic. Trust me, this won't be the end. I'll even give you a sign if you want. And Ahaz, in his fear, says no. What is it about us humans that even when God offers clear evidence of himself, we'd rather not see it? Instead, Ahaz turns to the most powerful people he knows. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 16. He reaches out to the dreaded Assyrian king, 
TP3, Tiglath Pileser III, and says, I am your servant and your son. Come and rescue me. I'll do anything. He sells out to a brutal tyrant and effectively seals the downfall of his people. It leaves us in a bleak place by the end of Isaiah 10. No hope within, no hope from the great ones. Isaiah pictures these proud nations, Israel, Assyria, as once lush forests brought down to the ground. At the end of chapter 10, Assyria are just a pile of bark chips. And in chapter 6, Isaiah's job is to preach a message of judgment to God's own people that will confirm them in their stubbornness until the nation is reduced to a stump. Until today, where hope blooms. And from the blackened stump, a green shoot sprouts. Now, whoever you are today, we could all use a bit more hope in our lives, right? If you're here exploring whether Jesus is someone worth knowing, I hope you'll be amazed today by the hope of peace that he offers. If you've been following Jesus for a while, chances are you know what it's like to feel like you need some more hope. Maybe as you look at the world where Christians are increasingly disliked, or maybe as you look within and see less passion and less change than you once longed for. We all need a deep-seated, substantial hope to keep going strong. And that's what Isaiah gives us today. So point one, hope for peace. From the wreckage of human foolishness, a green sprout. Verse one makes it clear that this bud of new life represents the prince of peace. From the family tree of Jesse, the great King David's father. A tree that's gone pretty much rotten and been pruned back to nothing. And a new David is coming. This is what he'll be like, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. After generations of kings like Ahaz... Now a leader driven by something other than themselves, a deep love and healthy fear of God, empowered by the Spirit of God himself to be both wise and strong. Can you imagine a leader like that? Verse 3 tells us about his leadership strategy. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. That's the way of the Prince of Peace. In earlier chapters, God expressed his fury at the leaders who neglected the vulnerable. Here is a king with deep insight who uses his position of power not to exploit, but to serve those who need it most. And he rules not with an iron fist, but verse 4, with words of piercing truth that get the job done. And look at the results in verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. 
and verse 8. The infant will play near the cobra's den. It's better than a Scottish beach. It's the hope of a world at peace. All the dangers that we're so used to, gone. To the extent that a little lamb can safely invite a wolf over for a sleepover. We've got redbacks in our shed, and you should see how paranoid I am about our one-year-old going near it. Imagine a world where you could watch your little ones in your life crawling over to the redback's web and start playing around with it and poking and prodding it, and you can just sit back and say, have fun. What kind of world is that? It's a world where human sin and all its effects are gone. Because that's the real issue here. It's not ultimately about calves and lions getting along. It's about people being right with God. Ever since the first humans decided to try and live without their maker, our world has been in turmoil. Selfishness and exploitation are the natural consequences of a bunch of imposter kings and queens fighting for dominance. Danger is normal. Even the natural order has been in a state of unrest because of human sin, natural disasters, and even savage animals. And the Prince of Peace is coming to deal with that deep, deep issue. In case we didn't catch the point of the imagery, Isaiah makes it explicit in verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No more sin, no more sorrow, peace with God. Our world is similar in lots of ways to the world Isaiah spoke to. We still live with the tragic consequences of humans shaking our fists at God. But there's one difference. In our world today, this hope has begun to bloom. Because God has, in our past, sent a son of Jesse, a humble carpenter named Jesus, who at every point shows himself to be this promised fruitful branch. I was reading Matthew's gospel the other morning, and because I was thinking about this talk, I couldn't help but marvel at how perfectly he fulfills this role. You know, when he's baptized in the river Jordan, and he's marked out as the one on whom God's spirit rests. And the first thing the Spirit leads Jesus to do is go out and be tempted in the wilderness. And while he's starving and tired, the devil says, Just bow down to me and I'll give everything to you. Now what other leader would hear an offer like that and say, No, I serve God only. And everywhere Jesus goes, life springs up. He heals the sick. He casts out the demons. He sees through facades and silences the self-righteous with the sword of his mouth. That final work of renewal is still yet to come. But this world has tasted it. And you can see it today. Little buds of new life as people come to know God. As Jesus uses the meek and the weak the simple faith of children, the prayers of elderly saints to tame the vicious. Now there's someone I'm happy to pin my hope on. Not myself, not the popular, 
Jesus. And before we move on, this hope for peace does give us a couple of challenges. First is notice that it comes from outside. Isaiah 1 to 10 show us what human beings in and of ourselves are capable of. And it's not a pretty picture. Until God comes in and the Prince of Peace starts giving life to the world. So as we look for that hope, that why to keep us going, we need to look outside to Jesus and what he's done, what he's promised. And that's a relief because I don't need to drum up the resources in myself. But if we want this hope to really take deep root in our lives, we need to go deeper. I've kind of been marinating in this picture of safety and security this week, and it struck me with a question. On the rare occasion that I drift into my own thoughts on the job, where do my daydreams take me? Because that would say something about what I hope in. And so often I reckon my daydreams are about myself. Projects I might accomplish and the recognition that might result. My prayer this week is that I might learn to daydream about this future. A world with no danger because there's no sin. Not only is it so much better, it's actually more realistic. It helps me build my hopes on something I can't mess up. In a world of fear, there is a why. Peace is coming. And point two, there is a way home. Verses 10 to 16 give us a picture of a second exodus. Centuries before, God had unforgettably brought his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the parted Red Sea against all the odds to be his treasured possession. And after all that, what happened Well, the people started complaining, and then they started to drift from living for this God to wanting to be more like the other nations around them. By the time we get to Isaiah 11, the people are enslaved again to themselves, to selfish kings, and to a superpower on their doorstep. So how stunning is it that God promises to do it all again Have a look at verse 16. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. The people of Israel walked out on God, and that's not okay. The judgment of exile is coming, and yet God promises to bring a remnant back from wherever they've been scattered to. Once again, he will part the seas so his people can walk home. That's what God is like. He is our long-suffering father who stands on the doorstep and patiently calls out, no matter how far you've strayed, come on home. The incredible thing is that God always knew that his people would stray. Let me read you some words from Deuteronomy, from Moses, not long after the first exodus. He warns the people about the dire consequences of rejecting God and then says, When all these blessings and curses that I've set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, 
Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. God knows our hearts. He knows how quick we are to look for life in anything but him. And he will stop at nothing to bring us back. He's a God of more than second chances. And again, the root of Jesse is central. In verse 10, he's the beacon, not just for the scattered Israelites, but for people of all nations to come home to God. And so Jesus came first for the Jews. And then when people from other nations started looking for him, he announced that his greatest hour had come. He says in John 12 that when he's lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. No matter who you are, no matter what you've been living for, Jesus offers you beautiful, undeserved, substantial hope. How can we be sure though? After everything God has said in Isaiah about that right fury towards how we've treated him, you'll be glad to know that God doesn't turn a blind eye for his favorites. And the rest of Isaiah has plenty to say about how a just and holy God makes it possible for sinners to live with him. He hints at it there in verse 11 with that word, reclaim. When God reclaims us, he pays the cost for our ticket home. And that cost was paid in Jesus' greatest hour with his blood. For anyone who will take shelter in Jesus, be assured the terrible fury of judgment day that we all deserve, Jesus voluntarily stepped in to take that upon himself in that hour. That's how God parts the seas so that we can walk home safely. If you're trying to work out where you stand with Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe it's been a long wrestle. Can I ask, is there anything stopping you from taking shelter under Jesus' branches? He's already paid for your ticket home. That's not up for grabs wherever you're coming from. Today, he's inviting you to leave that futile battle of finding hope within or from the powerful and find peace and safety with him to quench your thirst for meaning with the pure water of knowing your maker. God's got a track record at this. We're talking about hope, not wishful thinking. He did it for the Israelite slaves in Egypt. We can look back and see how he did it for the faithful remnant after exile. We can look to Jesus and see how Jew and Gentile alike flocked to him. And how for the past 2,000 years, people from all walks of life found rest for their souls in him. What does it look like to be a part of God's reclaimed people? Well, Something that stands out in verse 13 is that a mended relationship with God means mended relationships with each other. Ephraim and Judah represent the northern and southern tribes of Israel who were in terrible conflict for generations. God promises to mend that relationship so they can together defeat God's enemies. 
And there's a challenge there for us. If we want to see more and more people around us find hope in Jesus, our unity will serve that mission. Envy and harassment within us will hinder it. I've only known you all for a few months, and from what I can tell, this is a warm and vibrant community of people who love Jesus. But we're humans, so it's worth asking, as we gear up for that great missionary task of starting a new church in Tonsley later this year, are there people from church who you need to seek reconciliation with before that happens? Or are there people at church who you have a surface-level unity with but have never really invested in? Those who follow Jesus are on the road home together, calling out for others to join on the way. That road's not always going to be easy. For the faithful remnant in Isaiah's day, it meant becoming the minority and enduring the tragedy of exile— As we travel with Jesus, we need this hope to be stubborn in our lives. That'll make the road not only bearable, but joyful. So point three, drink this hope in. In chapter 12, Isaiah takes his first listeners to a day beyond God's judgment, when they would drink, drink deeply from the waters of peace. He brings it so near that they can taste it. And on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, that day has dawned. Yes, our world is still groaning under God's judgment. We're not there yet. But Jesus has come. And one day those buds of life will be full-blown forests when he comes again. So for us, this chapter of praise is both a model response to what Jesus has already done and a way to strengthen our hope for what is still to come as we drink it in. Soaking in that peace with God expresses itself in two songs of praise, one personal and one as a group. Recent secular research has reflected the fact that gratitude is healthy uh, and it's good for our relationships too, right? Over the past couple of months, my mum has been doing some amazing things for us to help us. She comes and looks after Ari once a week and does all kinds of supportive things. And that's kind of a normal part of our routine now. Now, mum's not in it for the thanks. Uh, But the other day, Aisha and I found ourselves after a particularly hectic one, saying thank you properly for the first time in a while, just listing off the things we appreciated And Aisha reflected that saying thanks out loud and in detail actually changed how she felt. She felt more aware of mum's support and more thankful for it. I have a good relationship with mum, but in the hecticness of life, like any good relationship, I can let it become a bit dry and transactional, like, here's the baby, bye. (laughs) Saying thank you helps. It takes effort to stay thankful though, right? How much more with the God who saved us? When life's busy and there's plenty to worry about, these songs in Isaiah 12 are a gift to help our hearts stay warm. Listen to the personal song of thanks in verse 1. I will praise you, Lord, 
although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. It's the song of someone who knows the power of the cross. If you know Jesus, then you've tasted peace with God. Saying thank you is not only right, it will help you soak in the reality of what he's done for you as you walk the road home. What could that personal thankfulness look like for you? Uh, For me, I found it quite helpful recently to try some simple kind of journaling stuff. Uh, As I read through a chapter or two of the Bible each morning, I, I try to then write a short prayer to God, including something from the passage that I'm thankful for. It's just a two or three sentences normally. That little habit has helped me to feel more thankful and hopeful. Uh, but something I'd like to think a bit more about is how can I practice speaking highly of what God has done for me around others? I don't know about you, but I can find it easy for the main thing I say about my relationship with God to be, I've got a church thing on. And that's not bad to say, but as a person of hope, I want to practice using my choicest words for Jesus to talk about what's great about church or the thing I love about being a Christian is fill in the blank. If you know Jesus, you have a great song to sing. But we're more than just thankful individuals, aren't we? God saves us into a family. And so in verse 4, you will say, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. This is God's people calling out to each other on the journey home. And Christians of various traditions, including the Anglican tradition, have often made a habit of saying or singing words very much like these to each other. God knows we need help to drink in the hope we have, so he gives us each other. And Jesus gets us involved in his work of defeating his enemies with words of beautiful truth. Uh, Two themes jump out from this second song. It's God's people calling each other to praise him and to tell others about him. What a gift we can be to each other when we do that. Again, what could that look like for us? Well, I love that we're a singing community, and it's worth acknowledging that's a pretty unusual thing in our world, right? Ever since recorded music made by the pros has become the norm, it's become more and more odd for a group of ordinary people to get together to sing some songs, but Christians have kept doing it, not because they're stuck in the past, but because of the future, Singing our story helps that hope sink deeper into our thoughts and even, dare I say, our feelings. In some weeks, you might help another believer as they see you sing about Jesus. In other weeks, you might be the one coming feeling utterly dry and you might be helped by seeing a sister or brother singing about our why. So let's keep being a singing church, even if it feels a bit odd. But singing together here is just one way we can apply this idea of helping each other drink deep of our hope. What opportunities do you have at the moment? Well, I was recently helped at community group. Uh, When we prayed together at the end of the night, I said, all right, everyone, let's go around and share one thing you're thankful for, one thing you can ask God for. And 
we went around, and when it came to me, I um, started downloading about all the things I was stressed out about, and eventually I kind of petered out and waited for someone to pray. Um, and then someone in our group chimed in, anything you're thankful for? Or <laughs> It was such a good reminder. I'm really thankful. <laughs> I can always praise God for something, no matter what's going on. What a gift. He gives us each other so we can remember, oh yeah, he's done glorious things. And so we can spur each other on. Let's go and tell the world. Uh, I think of Jeff, my small group leader from when I was in my early 20s. It wasn't part of our official program or anything, but pretty much every time we broke up to pray, he'd say something like, oh, I had a go at telling, bringing Jesus up with my soccer friends again on the weekend, and please pray for one of them who was, seemed interested in reading the Bible. Or maybe a few weeks later, Oh, it's probably time I tried again with my soccer mates. Please pray for courage. That was really formative for me, just to have telling others about Jesus always on the radar. What would it look for, like for us to encourage each other in that? As we hope to start a new church later this year, I want to say especially to those who will be sending and staying here, we're really going to need each other with this. Church is suddenly going to start feeling small and things that used to be normal are going to become hard. It might be tempting to feel discouraged or perhaps worse, to start feeling cozy and being content that we can know each other's or everyone's name again. We'll need to really remind each other that there are still thousands of people within a stone's throw of this building who don't know peace with God yet. We'll need to talk about it. We'll need to sing about it. We need a deep-seated, stubborn, substantial hope. And that hope has bloomed. The Prince of Peace has come. Let's help each other drink deeply of that reality. So to that end, as we finish now, um, why don't we encourage each other by reading out loud verses 4 to 6 of Isaiah 12. There on your leaflets. Grab your leaflet and let, let's read from where it says, Give praise to the Lord down to the end together. And I'll invite the band up as we do this. Everyone got it? Look over someone's shoulder. Here we go. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. And proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Amen.